парой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash blog or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the table of ranks. This week's podcast is the final event of the speaker series Spying, Archiving, Reporting, Information in Eastern Europe, organized by the Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies Center at the University of Pittsburgh. Police files are more than catalogs of suspected crimes. They construct a suspect's biography. This was the case in Polish police files where genres of biography and criminal surveillance blurred, turning the cop into a kind of literary author. Communist police files, therefore, told stories, not just about the factual and fictive biographical characteristics of a subject, but also intimate aspects of their personal lives and relationships. Anna Krakos is an assistant professor of Slavic languages and literature and comparative literature at the University of Southern California. She specializes in Polish cinema and in the Cold War period of Polish secret police files. She's the author of No End in Sight, Polish Cinema During Late Socialism, published by the University of Pittsburgh Press. I've provided a partial transcript of this interview. I'll put a link in the show notes and on the podcast website. Here's Anna Krakos. So, secret police files. This is always an interesting topic. And I, I wanted this, I'm always, you know, interested what draws people to certain topics and police files in particular. So I thought we could start by just asking me asking you, what attracted you to the study of Polish secret police files? Well, so it started in 2009. I was a grad student at NYU, and my advisor was Kristina Vatulescu, who had written a book about the Romanian Securitate files. Um, and she very casually actually one day kind of asked me, do you know anything about Michel Foucault's secret police file from Poland? Um, the background to that, for those of you who don't know, is that sort of every biography on Michel Foucault states that he was in Poland for a year in the 1950s. He was a cultural attache to the ambassador. Um, he had an affair with a young translator who sets a honey trap. He's an agent or a collaborator with the secret police. Foucault is subsequently deported. This is a story that's told and retold in all of his official biographies, uh, but it's unverified. So Christina Watulescu asked, basically, can we, can we verify this? Do you want to go check it out and we can co-author something? And it just sounded so exciting. I'd read, read her work and to sort of do it myself and I mean, together with her, but to actually go and look at it myself was really exciting. So I went, um, turned out to be a lot harder than I expected because this file was not readily available. Um, so it's, I mean, 10 years later, we're finally publishing an article about it. I'm not going to give away any of our twists and turns. But through this process of basically looking for this file for our mutual project, 
I just found sort of a deep passion for it myself because as a scholar of literature and film, which is what I am, um, you like stories, right? I mean, you're interested in stories about people. And here you're sort of in a library of lives, just uh, reading about even the minutia of people's lives. I mean, it was just fascinating. So I, I really sort of, I, I was working on the Foucault project, but also found all these sort of independent uh, projects along the way. And that's how it started. Yeah, I find your approach to these files really, as a historian, it's a really kind of interesting, unique approach but before we get to that, talk about the process of these files becoming, these Polish police files becoming public. Because in one article, you, you described the process as slow and highly, a highly political process. So why were they so controversial to, to be released? Um, it goes back to the very fall of socialism in Poland, 1989, and the first prime minister after the, the Cold War ends says that we're going to draw a thick line, he calls it, between ourselves and history, meaning we're going to be sort of, this is a forgiving stance. We're going to forget about what happened. We're not going to pursue collaborators. We're not going to punish the people from the former regime. There's this thick line. So when all of a sudden they're sort of not just dragging out in the late 90s uh, or, or mid 90s, they're not just sort of going back into the past, they're dragging out the ugliest part of the past, right? People who are collaborating in secret um, and so on. So it goes in tension with this basic idea of this sort of new Poland that we're going to be forgiving. We're not going to look into this. And all of a sudden they're saying, actually, let's let's do it. Let's look at this. So that's why it's so controversial. Is it was it used as a as a political weapon to demonize certain politi political factions? Well, it has been used that way. Uh, Lech Wałęsa is the sort of main example of this, the, the solidarity leader who was the first president after uh, 1989. Um, he's really, I mean, they found a lot of files about him. It's been really controversial. So that, I think, is the main example of how that has been politicized. Yeah. So what does a typical police file contain about a person who's under surveillance or is working as an informant? Um, so I look mostly in the 1950s and the 1980s, uh, and they're similar but different. Um, what is always present in a police file is the first sort of opening biographical page. Um, you have a picture of the suspect. Um, you have a little bit of sort of date of birth. What do they do? Where did they? Where are they born? Where did they go to school? All the sort of typical bio. A little bit about their parents. Uh, but then uh, it differs from file to file to some degree. Um, if the person is surveilled, which not actually everyone is in a traditional way. So okay, so say you and I have a file. So today we meet in the morning and we walk over here. So potentially we're surveilled. So we have a person walking after us somewhere or sort of stationed somewhere. So the file would include uh, information like they turn on the street, uh, she's walking with or he's walking, they would describe the other person, you know, he's walking with a brunette uh, who seems to be of this and that age, hopefully they'd be generous, who knows. Um, <laughs> But they would describe us in that way, they entered this or that building. That's one part of the files, but that's not always there. What's always there is the kind of files that they would, for instance, ask your generous supporter, Sarah. What do they talk about along the way? Uh, and unfortunately, what we don't know, or maybe we suspect, is that Sarah 
Tough Luck is a collaborator. Uh, so she's telling him everything about our deep sort of secret conversations about Russia and, <laughs> and literature about Russia. Um, so that would always be in there. Uh, and then, of course, we come here, we do this interview, there are people in the room, and they would then also be asked, what did they talk about? So this is sort of, in, in some cases, we would have a person in here who would report themselves. And in some cases, we would have collaborators who would report to an agent. Because of the difference sort of in technology, they differ a little bit. In the 50s, there's very little technology. There are very few bugs and things like that, like we imagined that there would be. Um, but in the 80s, say, so at that point, someone would probably be recording. There might even be secret video recording uh, of this interview. Um, so that's sort of how they differ. That's what we expect to be in there. Uh, when I look at the 1950s, because I've looked at diplomatic outposts, we do have some phone tapping because that's where they would be placed. In 1958 that I look at, I think they had about 20 bugs that were sort of available. And one of them was in the French consulate in Krakow that I've read about extensively. So sometimes you're lucky you find something like that. You know, being a collaborator is a can be a very complex position because on the one hand, you know, you could be coerced in becoming a collaborator, uh, but you may not necessarily want to play along. So, and, and you might engage in certain, you know, forms of subterfuge or, or, you know, misleading information to throw the police in a different direction possibly. Um, so what sense do you have of that relationship of the collaborator and how they, essentially use the information they have as a as a tool as a as even a weapon in a way against their participation yeah no that's a great question um I have one particular person in mind who just talks so much like his files are so long because he just goes on and and still the secret police who are assigned to his case the agent's keep complaining like he's not collaborating he's not collaborating and he just goes on and about really political issues too he talks about this case um i don't know if you know agnieszka holland the the director her father uh died under sort of mysterious circumstances probably caught a death caused by the secret police really sensitive and he talks about this he's like oh we know you were there we know you pushed him out the window and i'm thinking wow like he's really um, sort of political, and yet here they are complaining, and it's because they keep saying, can you just tell us about this one guy? Can you please just tell us about your conversation with this one person? And he's like, oh, I'll tell you, and then he doesn't. He just goes on about all these different things. So certainly, like, all these words are silence, right? All his words are essentially silence. Um, and the Foucault article that I mentioned that um, Christina Vatulesco and myself are... Um, basically finishing its forthcoming in diacritics talks about silence um, as, exactly in these terms um, um, among other ways but yeah ex absolutely speaking is a tool uh, against speaking right. do you have a sense of what when they compile a file mm -hmm. at what point does it become actionable or is it just mostly archived because I would imagine a lot of the information is is you know having looked through say FBI files, mm -hmm. a lot of the information is pretty mundane. Mm -hmm. So do you have a sense of what happens to a file? Like what's the life of the file? Sure, um, it differs of course, uh, but they tend to move around between different departments. Mm -hmm. um, so first of all, like you say, a lot of it is just mundane minutia. So at some point they might say, okay, we're not getting anything, or so they or maybe 
Sarah, our collaborator, stops collaborating, just says, I won't do it anymore. And they say, well, we're not going to pursue someone else. So then there is nothing for a couple of years. And at that point, perhaps it's used by someone else instead, or it's just on the shelf. Um, but often it'll be, okay, suddenly they're interested in someone else, like your friend Max over here. Um, and then they say, well, we want to know who Max knows. And then our file is suddenly placed with his file. Uh, so we move around, which is one reason it's hard to find files sometimes today, because I look for Sean or Anna's file, but we're in Max's file. We have to figure out who did we know, right? So that's something. But um, the files I look at are rarely actionable. It's mostly minutia. Uh, there's one case of a consul I look at who is deported, but it's kind of questionable. Uh, the circumstances are hard to determine. In your analysis of, of these files, you look at it through a lens of literature and a literary analysis, but you also have this thing where the police file intersects with law and literature. So how does it, what's that relationship between law and literature in a police file? Um, so the law and literature uh, stuff, it's, uh, it's a field of study that's called law and literature that takes a lot of different, it looks different ways, but there are two main strains, which is literature, uh, like law in literature, which basically literature about legal topics. Uh, but the other way is law as literature, and that's what I do. You have legal documents, like in our case, the police files, um, that we read through a literary lens. We read them as narratives. What can they tell us sort of when they're read as stories rather than accusations? So that's the way they figure into that. And what kind of stories do they tell? Um, well, they tell stories about lives, like I said before, and sort of you, you read about people. Um, and on the one hand, it's a much more boring story than a novel <laughs> because you have to read like, oh, they brushed their teeth for three minutes or whatever. Uh, but that has its own kind of charm. Um, and they tell stories about the system um, in which they were created. We learn about sort of who is interesting at what period in time. Um, and um, they tell us stories um, about the police itself, what they care about. I mean, you get to know not only the person in the file, but the person compiling it. Mm -hmm. I have some um, people who are just great storytellers. Mm -hmm. uh, well, there's this one guy who loves talking about hobbies. <laughs> so he goes into, you know, this person likes to go fishing and he talks about that. Um, so we also learn about those people. We read the stories of the storyteller. Do you, do you, so do you get a sense of the, through reading these files, a sense of the author who's compiling the reports? I think so. I mean, in two ways. Both, like I said, it's a system of authors. So what are they told to do? But also the individual. Uh, sometimes in the margin, there will be little notes that kind of strain away from what's expected. I saw one file once where uh, the, there's a sort of... Um, a questionnaire where one of the questions is, you know, what is this person a suspect of? And, and the, the author of the file uh, writes in the margin, like, I don't, <laughs> I don't think he's really a good suspect. Like, I don't think he's done anything. Uh, but another thing we learn about the authors is that there isn't one author. Yeah. 
there's tons of them because, uh, like I said, we have the collaborators. They're writing their reports. You have agents who are often multiple writing their reports. They um, are reporting to someone else. That's also a really fun uh, process to see someone sort of complaining. Like, why did you write this? And, you know, this is poor grammar. Uh, so you even on that level, have a sort of a collaboration between the different authors. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, you get to know quite a bit about them if you're if you're interested in that. And now, now in, in one of your essays, you note a really interesting irony, and that is, you know, many people in Poland consider these police files as being loaded full of false information, yeah. you know, even fa fabricated information. Yet these files play a really important role in lustration cases. So when somebody wants to run for public office, they have to go through kind of a process to see if they were ever an informant or a collaborator. Um, and, and these files in that illustration process are used as truth. So talk about this issue of lustration and that's the strange role the, the police file plays in, in the process. So as you mentioned, lustration is a kind of employment law. It's a, it's a kind of transitional justice that is used in the East Bloc in most countries, but also in some other countries in the world. But um, it's exactly, if you're running for public office after the fall of socialism, uh, they want to vet you. It's a vetting procedure. So they check against the secret police file if you were a collaborator. In different countries, this looks a little bit different. There are some countries where this is a decommunization ban. So basically, if you're part of the regime, you're not working in public office anymore. The idea being, if you were my judge in the 1950s in a show trial, I don't want you to be my judge anymore now. Right? We have a new democracy. In Poland, it's, it's much softer. You can actually run for office even if you were a collaborator. You can gain office if people vote for you. Um, but if you're dishonest, you are punished. So you have to say, yes, I was a collaborator. Basically, it's a piece of paper. You say yes or no. So you say no, it's checked against your police file. And it's determined if you're truthful or not. Um, but that's where sort of this is the problem that you mention. Um, that what if the police file is false? What if it says that you were a collaborator when you weren't? Uh, we know that there are really deep problems with the police files. The most sort of typical issues that come up is one, the falsified information, like you mentioned. Um, there. Um, we know that people were forced to collaborate. We know that police had quotas to fill. Like I said, sometimes you have to say that someone's a suspect. Maybe you don't believe it. Um, the police was to that degree that they had something called, the or we now call it the dead souls phenomenon. They would go to cemeteries and write up people as their collaborators because they needed to have uh, a quota. Um, so that's the sort of fabrication issue. The other issue is that they were destroyed in mass in 1989. There were just mass burnings of these files, which leads to sort of a conundrum um, that for on the one hand, what's said about you might be false. On the other hand, what could have been sort of truthful has been burned. This is the sort of the way you get out of this accusation. Well, they forced me to collaborate. I never actually collaborated, or you know. And well, there were sort of there were files that would prove that I didn't do anything wrong, but they've probably been destroyed. So how can they have truth value under those circumstances? I think it's a universal issue, not just Polish. To be frank, we don't want to believe that people we admire did bad things. Uh, 
and we want people who we don't like to be punished for their bad actions. And lustration causes a, a difficult situation because you have to kind of uh, bend your expectations in that mm -hmm. regard. And in the lustration process, do some of the details in the files become public? Like, does it cause people, you know, if you're a politician, there's you're kind of a target for scandal. Does, how does this play out in, in, in political campaigns and in the public? Yeah, it does become public. And um, even in cases of auto illustration, so when you look at your own file, um, and also when researchers such as myself go in and we look at files and then we write about them, journalists and researchers have complete access to the Polish files. Um, this is not the case in all East European countries, but in Poland it is. So yeah, it becomes used against them. Again, Wałęsa is the sort of main example of this. Uh, there was a book published especially about him claiming uh, that he was a collaborator. And after that, the evidence just amassed. Yeah. It, that that's this brings up the other issue. You just mentioned it with the use of uh, the police files as a source and a source for journalists and historians, because here you, you know, if the police file has a lot of falsified information and you want to write a political biography or a biography of somebody through these files, you present the danger of actually using or perpetuating this false information in public. So and, and then there's the other aspect of the police file where the police file itself is a kind of biography of an individual. Um, so talk about this this varied relationship of the biography to the police file. Sure. I like to call police files abstract biographies, but I know a lot of people disagree with that term because they think that sort of it's... Um, the secret police were too precise and sort of too methodical to call it abstraction. They would themselves definitely not like that terminology. But I think of it sort of as a cubist painting. Um, the features are clear, and you know that it's a portrait. You can see that it's a person. Um, there are different angles, different perspectives. So there's a nose from this perspective, an ear from that perspective. And we have the file where again, say that it's our files, um, five people in this room will tell the different stories about what we talked about. So you have all these perspectives on the sort of nose or on this situation. But then, like I said, there's two years when there's nothing. So you have no idea what was happening. So there's kind of the lack of that feature. So it's kind of a cubist biography, I like to think. Um, with that said, it is useful in historical research. And like right now, I'm writing about this German news correspondent, Ludwig Zimmerer. He's tons of files. Uh, and to some degree, you can sort of get a picture. Like I said, you do see that it's a portrait. Um, it can also confirm information that you already have. Uh, in his case, I sort of have other data, and here I can read about it and get this great confirmation and sort of exploration of those facts. Um, so it can be used, and people use them in autobiographies yeah. as well, but certainly <laughs> to a large degree to, to say that they're wrong, that they're false. But um, I mean, there, there is truth in there. If you're careful, you can probably figure out some of it at mm -hmm. least. Now, you're also a scholar of film. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, you write, write about how police files have been reflected in popular culture and in Polish film. So what place does the, the police file play in that in post-socialist so, post Poland? Um, in all of Eastern Europe, it's just film is littered with the secret police files. The most famous example is The Lives of Others, that won the German film that won the Oscar in 2006. Um, but in Poland, there's plenty examples, and I, I'll, I'll tell you about two that I um, think is one that I think are the most telling. One 
is sort of immediately about the files and one is sort of about illustration or the effects of the files. Um, so the first one is this cult classic from 1992, uh, um Pigs it's called because it refers to police. Um, so in a not very nice way, obviously. So it poses the question of what will happen to these secret police agents now that the secret police is dismantled. It answers the question by saying, well, they will just be corrupt policemen in the new <laughs> regime. But um, what it shows that really has become sort of ingrained uh, as an image um, in Polish consciousness is these, they go to these dumps and just burn massive amounts of files, truckloads of files. Uh, a captain of these officers at one point says, uh, today our whole past goes up in flame. There's some expletives in there, but I'm not going to repeat them. Um, so. This is sort of the, this has become an image that every poll knows. I mean, whether or not they've seen the movie, quite frankly, but it's sort of it's made in '92, so it's really just immediately after these actual burnings took place. The other film is from 2008. Uh, it's *The Scratch* by Michał Rosa, and it's about this couple, this kind of upper middle class couple, um, whose lives are completely disrupted by the accusation that the husband in the couple was actually a secret police agent who married this uh, his wife to get closer to her father who was a politi politician so in the film there's this vague or it's a, it's not a vague accusation it's an accusation but the evidence is vague and the wife has no reason to believe in it um, but she does. At first she doesn't, but then she sort of pursues her own investigation. In a sense, she becomes the secret police, kind of spying and looking and into this stuff. Um, and it completely disrupts the marriage. And at one point, the husband asks, you know, what do you, he sort of in frustration says, what do you want me to do? Shout it in the streets that I didn't do this? And it really points to the problem of lustration that there's no way out. Even if he were to shout it in the streets, you know what? And she has no evidence and she still chooses to believe the, you know, this sort of the false, although we never know, is it false or not? I'm not going to give away the ending. It might not be. Um, but she still chooses to believe this vague evidence. Um, and it goes back to what you asked before about sort of why are they controversial? Why is this opening controversial? And it's because she has to be the forgiving one. That's the message of the film, right? Because she has to choose to believe him or not. Like, it's up to her. Uh, it shows that as a country, we're the ones who have to believe um, in forgiveness mm -hmm. because we can't do anything if we're accused. So it's sort of up to the other person. So I think those films are really telling about the sort of what yeah. the files mean in Poland. I would imagine, too, it also speaks to a way to get past or overcome the mutual suspicion and paranoia of a society if you discover, you know, there are, I would imagine, millions of these police files, mm -hmm. therefore, you know, hundreds of thousands of informants who are, you know, sometimes very close to you, you know, how do you get past that culture of suspicion? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, you, it's... Uh in some countries, it's more like it, it, where they were sort of open in a different way. It's been even more so. Uh, someone once told me about sort of a friend of theirs who every time a 
file was released, they would just cross their, that person's name out of, they had a phone book and they would just cross it out and just say, well, this person's dead now, you know? Um, it had, I mean, I'm sure there are people like that in Poland as well, but I, uh, I don't know of any. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it, it confirms paranoia for a lot of people in this way of like, oh, I always, I always suspected that that neighbor right. was doing something. Um, now you can prove that they did. Uh, and again, it goes to this, well, if they're not in the file, well, they just got away. Like uh, that particular part was destroyed because right. I know that that neighbor did it. It actually goes to a point that another sort of issue, um, which is that Poles, and I'm sure this is true in the entire East Bloc, they love the idea of having had a file. Even though on the one they say it's really? false, it's not real, they're very insulted almost when I tell them you're not in the system uh, because that means they weren't important enough to be spied on. Uh, so I will often hear, well, then it's been destroyed because I know that this and this and that person were definitely you know, collaborating and talking about me. Um, there's no way I wasn't surveilled. Wow, that's really interesting because, you know, and I was going to ask this in a bit, but I'll ask it now. You know, these files are really about producing certain identities and subjectivities of the people being surveilled, right? You get a sense of the police are, you know, constructing a suspect with certain qualities, right, through that surveillance. But it's, it, I'm really surprised to find out that also it has something to, the police, the existence of a police file is also has something to do with a person's identity in the sense of, well, if I don't have one, it must have been destroyed. Or if you do have one, it somehow confirms something about you being important or maybe subversive. I, I don't I know if you can comment on that. Well, OK, so I'm going to actually go back to Lives of Others for a second. Let's mm -hmm. leave Poland for a minute. Uh, although there are many issues with that movie, uh, it does touch on this problem. Because after the fall of socialism in Germany in this film, uh, the director, it's a, the film is about this uh, theater director um, who does a bunch of subversive activities. And he asks the minister, um, of well, the minister has been responsible for surveillance. He says, why did you never surveil me? Um, which they did. That's sort of part of the gist of the movie. But that's his first question is sort of like, why didn't, why didn't you care about me? Uh, and that's really true. So about subjectivity, I mean, part of it is um, that the files, they aren't just created by this institution. They're created by us as well. Even though we're forced collaborators to a large degree, I mean, some people weren't. Um, so we all kind of wrote these files. Um, you know, everybody was involved in it. So um, it does say something, you know, what did your friends say about you? How does it sort of create you a subject in that way? Because it's not just by the police. It's right. also all these other people around you. What did they think about you? I mean, it's actually re more reliant on the informant than it is actual police, act police oh. you know, the police surveilling someone. Certainly to a large degree, because I mean, most, like I said, most files will have just oral reports by sort of other, by collaborators, but not all will have actual surveillance data. Yeah. Now, you're working on an article looking at the Orange Alternative Performance Group and their relationship with the police, which is, a lot of it is really hilarious, uh, their, their street performances and, and the role of the archiving these kind of activities, the police archive of this. So to, what was this Orange Alternative and, and how were their performances regarded and cataloged by the police? 
So the Orange Alternative was, like you said, they're hilarious. They're a performance group uh, in the 1980s. Um, sort of do different kinds of activities from the early 80s to the late 80s. And they're most known for what they were doing in the late 80s, which was these happenings. They organized these street parties, basically, with hundreds of people. They called it a gnome revolution because they would wear Smurf hats and they would graffiti gnomes all over the city of Wrocław and later some other cities as well, including Warsaw. Um, so they would create these, they would have these parties basically with demonstrations. People would carry banners that read completely sort of, they call it surreal, so actually forget what they call it. It was something with surrealism, but it's not quite surreal. It's more like absurdity. Um, so they're carrying things that will say things like just shoe paste is one of my favorites, sort of a picture of a guy just, it's just says shoe paste. Um, or if you work for your country, you work for your country. Uh, so just sort of silly things like that. Um, they're obsessed with the police. They actually sort of become a group. And, and I should say both the police and the regular, both the secret police and the regular militia. Their relationship to the militia is what sets it all off. Um, they see police officers outside one outside their house one day, sort of painting over political propaganda um, or opposition as propaganda. And they run out and they sing happy birthday to these police agents. And so it's kind of that's where it starts. Um, the militia seemed to enjoy them, <laughs> to be honest. Like in, uh, in the video of these um, uh, happenings, they kind of play with them. They sort of call them Gargamel and just they, they play along. The secret police don't find them as amusing. Uh, I have a look at one file where uh, every time the agent mentions that they um, are sort of that that's playful. He puts that in quotation marks. Like, is it really playful? Um, but what surprised me, and I think the group itself also, uh, was that the secret police didn't archive that much. They took great photographs, they took great video, but they didn't write very much about them. The, the Orange Alternative even had two events specifically sort of in a sarcastic tribute to the secret police, these secret agent days when they would dress out as secret agents. Um, and even that, the secret police just kind of mentions, oh yeah, they did this thing. Um, you know, they don't, they don't really seem to care. This goes back to sort of the question of what's, what can we sort of say about them? What do the files teach us? Um, they teach us who's the enemy of the state at any given moment. But they also teach us who wasn't, right? Who believed that they, again, sort of wants to have a file, who wants to believe that they were subversive. Right. Um, but everything about them in the secret police reports is basically not about the political risks. It mentions it a little bit, uh, but it's more about the sort of risk to public safety. Hmm. Um, and they're arrested sometimes, but there's really not much written about them. Um, yeah. Do I, I wanted you to talk more about this interplay between the perf the group and the the people in it and the police, particularly how the police, the militia at least, mm -hmm. begin to become part of the performance. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Like, what what do you know about how they the police interacted, the interaction between the performance artists and and the police? Um, like I said, they sort of they. Um, I have this great video of them where they sort of shout things back and forth and um, the group kind of mocks the police. Um, 
but the police doesn't seem to care. They kind of mock them back. He calls them Gargama, like I said, or they kind of let them have their little chance on their behalf. They don't really care. Um, one thing that plays into this is a, a dissertation that I read, a thesis from uh, just the regular police academy uh, about the Orange Alternative. And the police um, student at that point says, you know, they've become predictable. They have a script. We know what's going to happen. The only thing that differs is kind of where are they going to be and what is the banner going to say. But it's essentially the same thing. So to the police, it like it's a script that they can play along with. Um, so they, that's one reason they stop, I think, being subversive is that we sort of know what's going to happen. Um, but yeah, police are kind of actors in this. They enjoy it. They let them chant and they kind of chant back. Yeah. You know. It's interesting because usually, you know, our assumption about police under these, you know, state socialist systems is they tend to be quite heavy handed. Mm -hmm. But here you, you see some sort of at least some recognition like, OK, I mean, we're not going to take these people all that seriously, um, you know, cause, because they're so predictable. Right. They get kind of it becomes part of the, you know, general performance or of protest. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, it, it, you know, it kind of defies, at least for me, it kind of defies how I understand the way police works in those, in sure. those systems. Like I said, they are arrested every now and then right. um, and questioned, but um, they are typically fine. Um, even so, even by the secret police, actually, who in their reports kind of state, okay, we're going to be there, we're going to, but what they actually do is very limited. Um, they take video, they take pictures, but for instance, in one of the videos I've looked at, the street that's left behind is just cluttered with graffiti. It's, I mean, it's just a colorful <laughs> uh, mess. Um, so obviously they were there, but they didn't stop this behavior. Um, and the police must have not stopped it either because right. it happened. So. Um, only once do, does it get violent uh, at one of their sort of happenings. So they're peaceful. There's a lot of children there. That's the reason the secret police also always say we have to be careful. We can't be violent because there will be children there. Um, so they have their sort of um, hands tied a little bit. Yeah. So, so given that police files are, as you said, you know, opened in a variety of ways throughout Eastern Europe. What are some of the differences between the Polish files and, say, Stasi files from Eastern East um, Germany? I'm going to give the sort of unfortunate answer, which is they just seem much more system, like systematic and organized in Germany, which is the stereotype of Germany. But it seems to be true. Um, that there's sort of when we look at the Stasi files, which I haven't really done much myself, I've sort of read other people look at it, it seems more organized um, than uh, in the case of Poland. That's the simple answer that I have. Are they interested in similar yeah, information? It seems like it. Like this similar guy that I'm writing about that I mentioned, they both write about him, both mm. Poles and, and Germans. Uh, so he's sort of an example of this. Yeah, they're, they're interested in foreigners and sort of foreigners. Uh, in their country, um, and but even more so about Poles or, in, in their case, Germans who are interacting with these foreigners. So, yeah, there is some overlap. Mm -hmm. You know, given the the controversy of opening secret police files, and and this is you know this is in most societies, um, but take the Polish case in particular, and this effort to the the files function as a 
as a way to, you know, demarcate the past and the present and in moving into a future. What is your opinion about the opening of these files? Um, well, I've benefited greatly. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, it's really complicated because uh, you mentioned a few particular sort of historical comparisons, Austria and slavery. I don't know enough about them to make sort of an informed comparison, but my feeling is that one reason it's sensitive um, in the Polish case is that you're outing collaborators who may not have wanted to do what they did um, and that they might seem more suspect than they are. Like people would sign, sure, I'll collaborate, but then never did, things like that. So what you're doing is you're not outing the perpetrators so much, they're known. Um, you're outing people who sort of are civilians. So that's uh, that's a big issue. That's the ones that you sort of would like to uh, protect. Um, in other countries, there are there is more protection in general. In Hungary, um, there's a much more difficult process to get to read about someone. They have these archivists who really go over the file before they give it to you, sort of to look over protection. And maybe maybe that's the right way. Personally, I mean, I I, I think it's good that they're open as long as we're sort of cautious and aware of these other risks about them. That's where popular culture steps in. Like I mentioned, the film Pigs or Psy. Um, you know, they show us, look, they were burned, like they were destroyed, and we have all these other files. If we take popular culture seriously enough, uh, maybe we can be cautious enough to deal responsibly with the files. But I think that the risk is that we sort of, we out civilians who maybe shouldn't be, maybe they should be protected. I, I would imagine too that it also really makes the conversation about who is a perpetrator, who is a victim, and oh, who is a collaborator yes. really difficult oh, to kind of parse. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you're right. Now that I'm sort of talking about civilians, uh, I mean, that's kind of a fraught mm -hmm. distinction that I'm making. Um, but yeah, no, absolutely. It's very hard to, to say. I mean, you mentioned Austria. I mean, we could say the same about Nazis for sure. There are people who really struggle with these definition, uh, this, these different definitions of perpetrator, victim, and uh, sort of standers by. Um, um, in the film Shoah, we really sort of struggle with that. So yeah, you're right. It's not as clear as I maybe made it sound. But and, and finally, um, I want to go back to this question of what these files say about the system writ large, because. You know, you have, as you said, if you look at it uh, as a kind of abstract painting mm -hmm. where you're getting pieces and different perspectives from informants, but also police, what is what do these files say to you about the larger biography of the system? It's functioning. Um, like I sort of mentioned before, it shows us who's the enemy at a given time. Um, because uh, I have worked on Foucault uh, and looked sort of at him in particular, people often ask, well, what about the homosexual community? How are homosexuals treated? And it's really sort of doesn't seem to be much of an issue in the late 50s when I look at what I've looked at. Um, but later it becomes a huge issue. So it tells us in the 80s, there's this big uh, operation, Hyacinth, where they just mass arrest uh, homosexual men in particular. 
So that gives us something or, um, you know, the way they talk about mental illness, like that gives us something about do they believe that people can be rehabilitated or, you know, is this an illness or is it uh, sort of a chosen political act? This tells us something about what they were believing at any given time. But also these gaps tell us a lot. What isn't there? Um, were they overwhelmed at a particular moment? Were there just not enough agents? That says something about how they were viewed by the greater powers, that at one point they sort of lose 80% of their collaborators because there's just not enough resources to deal with all of them. So um, it says a lot about the sort of what was the police treat, how was the police treated, the secret police? Um, what were, was their value? Um, or sort of how was it assessed, um, as well as through their actual work, we learn about what they cared about. That was Anna Krakos, an assistant professor of Slavic languages and literature and comparative literature at the University of Southern California. She specializes in Polish cinema and in the Cold War period of Polish secret police files. She's the author of No End in Sight, Polish Cinema During Late Socialism, published by the University of Pittsburgh Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon, share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, or write a review. The best way to spread the word is to recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org. Until next time, bye. function surprise